Hello everyone, this is Andrew from Iroquois History and Legends. Caleb and I dedicated an entire episode to the life of Red Jacket, but it just became too long, so we decided to split it into two episodes. So please sit back and listen to part two and the conclusion on the life of Red Jacket. So during this uh, period in Red Jacket's life, he becomes very anti-colonial, anti-American. All the things he warned about at the Big Tree Conference are happening, but people didn't listen. They were enticed by liquor, and as he saw it, that they bribed the clan mothers and the other people. He really started to pull back, and he really wanted to keep to his Seneca traditions. He saw that the more that people interacted with these Americans, the more they picked up their ugly habits. Drinking and gambling and uh, domestic violence is starting to become an issue. Red Jacket's not alone in this. Even President Washington is hearing about problems that indigenous people are facing, and he actually is writing in letters to his cabinet. I'm not going to read the whole letters, but I'm just going to pull some things out of here to show that Washington does have some bit of care. He says, quote, In a short period... The idea of an Indian on this side of the Mississippi will only be found in the page of the historian. So that's where Washington's realizing that, hey, if we don't do something, either they're all going to be extinct or they're all going to have to move west. He's trying to figure out how he can solve this problem. Unfortunately, his solution is assimilation. He and a lot of other like-minded people who had the, the Native Americans' best interests at heart, even uh, Reverend Samuel Kirkland, thought it would be best for the nations to adopt an agrarian model of living like the other settlers. And as Caleb has alluded to before, it just wasn't possible for them anymore to travel hundreds of miles to hunt in this spot and then another dozen miles to fish in this place and stay home and keep watch on the crops. And they also believed that formal English education and manners would help them adapt so that there wasn't so much cross-cultural issues. And as noble as that sounds, today we would really kind of classify these policies as like cultural genocide, trying to strip away the nationality from the people. And Washington wrote in another letter that he really wants to stop the wave of settlers coming in on Iroquois lands, but he felt powerless. Remember... The United States government at this time is not like the United States government today. Its federal powers were really limited, and the states really had a lot more power. And the president wrote, quote, I believe scarcely anything short of a Chinese wall or a line of troops will restrain the land gobblers and the encroachment of settlers upon the Indian territory. The Great Wall of China was famous even back then. He's literally saying, unless we have the Great Wall of China between the white people and the Indian land, we're not going to stop them from encroaching on it. And honestly, Caleb, I don't even know if that would work. So even though Washington and Kirkland and other people like them, they had their hearts in the right place. I guess that would be the way to say it. Red Jacket did not make any distinction between good or bad during those years. 
he became a lot like the uh, white people that said the only good Indian is a dead Indian. He basically adapted that same thought towards white people. Any Christian is a bad Christian. Any white person is a bad person. But Caleb, he couldn't have even been against missionaries. I mean, missionaries really loved the people that they were working with. Surely Red Jacket at that time couldn't have had anything bad to say against them, right? Oh, maybe uh, you should read this quote right here, Andrew, from Red Jacket at the time in response to missionaries. They do us no good. If they are not useful among the white people, why do they send them amongst the Indians? If they are useful to the white people, why do they not keep them at home? They are surely bad enough to need the labor of everyone who can make them better. Translation, Red Jacket saying, if missionaries are so effective, they should go tell the white people to stop stealing our land. Yeah. I'm sure he'd heard all these great Christian teachings about forgiveness and, uh, and caring for your neighbor, but he didn't see it in practice in any of the people he was dealing with. So he said, these missionaries need to go and convert the white people. Then you can tell them to come and convert us. In 1805, Red Jacket writes a speech, and he has it sent to the United States Senate in Washington, D.C. to be read. Now, Caleb, did we want to read the whole speech? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I don't think our fans are going anywhere. Friend and brother, it was the will of the Great Spirit that we should meet together this day. He orders all things and has given us a fine day for our council. He has taken this garment from before the sun and caused it to shine with brightness upon us. Our eyes are opened that we see clearly. Our ears are unstopped that we have been able to hear distinctly the words you have spoken. For all these favors, we thank the Great Spirit and him only. Brother, this council fire was kindled by you. It was at your request that we came together at this time. We have listened with attention to what you have said. You requested us to speak our minds freely. This gives us great joy. For now we consider that we stand upright before you and can speak what we think. All have heard your voice. First, we will want to look back a little and tell you of what our fathers have told us and of what we have heard from the white people. Brother, listen to what we say. There was a time when our forefathers owned this great island. Their seats extended from the rising to the setting sun. The great spirit had made it for the use of Indians. He had created the buffalo, the deer, and other animals for food. He had made the bear and the beaver. Their skins served us for clothing. He settled without the shedding of much blood. But an evil day has come upon us. Your forefathers crossed the great water and landed on this island. Their numbers were small. They found friends, but not enemies. They told us that they had fled their own country for fear of wicked men, and they'd come here to enjoy the religion. They asked for a small seat, and we took pity on them. We granted the request, and they sat down among us, and we gave them corn and meat, and they gave us poison in return. And by poison, he means alcohol, whiskey, rum. And then he continues, The white people, brother, had now found our country. Tidings were carried back, and more came among us. Yet we did not fear them. We took them to be friends. 
They called us brothers. We believed them and gave them a larger seat. At length, their numbers had greatly increased. They wanted more land. They wanted our country. Our eyes were opened and our minds became uneasy. Wars took place. Indians were hired to fight against Indians and many of our people were destroyed. They also brought strong liquor among us. It was strong and powerful and has slain thousands. Brother, our seats were once large and yours were small. You have now become a great people and we scarcely have a place left to spread our blanket. You have got our country but are not satisfied. You want to force your religion upon us. Brother, continue to listen. You say that you are sent to instruct us how to worship the great spirit, agreeably to his mind. And if we do not take hold of the religion, which you white people teach us, we shall be unhappy hereafter. You say that you are right and we are lost. How do we know this to be true? We understand that your religion is written in a book. If it was intended for us as well as you, why has the Great Spirit not given to us? And not only us, but why did he not give our forefathers the knowledge of that book with the means of understanding it rightly? We only know what you tell us about it. How shall we know when to believe, being so often deceived by the white people? Brother, you say there is but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there is but one religion, why do the white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree, as you can all read this book? Brother, we do not understand these things. We are told that your religion was given to your forefathers and has been handed down from father to son. We also have a religion which was given to our forefathers and has been handed down to us, the children. We worship in a way that teaches us to be thankful for all the favors we receive, to love each other, and to be united. We never quarrel about religion. Brother, the Great Spirit made us all, but he has made a great difference between his white and red children. He has given us different complexions and different customs. To you he has given the arts. To these he has not opened our eyes. We know these things to be true. Since he made so great a difference between us and other things, why may we not conclude that he has given us a different religion according to our understanding? The Great Spirit does right. He knows what's best for his children. We are satisfied. Brother, we do not wish to destroy your religion or take it from you. We only want to enjoy our own. Brother, you say that you have not come to get our land or our money but to enlighten our minds. I will not tell you that I have been at your meetings and saw you collect money from the meetings. I cannot tell you what this money was intended for, but I suppose that it was to pay the minister. And if we should conform to your way of thinking, perhaps you may want some from us. Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with the answer to your talk, and this is all we have to say at present, as we are going to part. We will come and take you by the hand, and hope the Great Spirit will protect you on your journey, and return you safe 
to your friends. Now that's probably Red Jacket's most famous speech. You see it published, people will take quotes out of this and make little memes and post it on their Facebook and Twitter pages. And it really gets you to see what Red Jacket thinks about what's happening among his people at this point in time. Now put a pin in this because Caleb and I are gonna point out that Red Jacket's beliefs on this issue evolve over time. Just like you and I do, we don't have the same way of thinking when we're younger to when we get older. But Red Jacket points out a lot of hypocrisy that was going on, talking about how people are forcing their beliefs on other people and how Christians can't get along. And he, all of his points are valid. Yeah, the just the different denominations that were popping up everywhere and none of them got along at all. You would have certain Christian denominations flat out saying that this other Christian denomination is going to hell because they're not practicing their Christianity properly. And Red Jacket said, if that's who Jesus is, I don't want any part of it. And again, he makes good points. So in 1810, trouble starts brewing out west again. I think this is the third time that we've seen a massive Indian confederation form. And this time it centers around the leader Tecumseh. And yeah, we'll talk about him in the future. But just give you the bullet points right now. These tribes start fighting back against American encroachment and they're being supplied by the British. Red Jacket travels to Washington, D.C. to talk about how he can try and pacify this situation. And shortly after this is the War of 1812. And we're going to dedicate at least one full episode, if not several, on this. So don't hate us for just kind of skimming over this because the War of 1812 has huge Iroquois influence in it. So we'll just touch on it today, though. Now, Red Jacket has, in this point in his life, Caleb, been very anti-American. So he goes over and sides with the British, right? That's what you'd think, but no. Once the War of 1812 happens, everyone would just assume that he would be like, okay, here's our chance to fight back against the injustice of the American government. But what he's really concerned about is... Rumors are the British are planning an invasion of Grand Island. Grand Island is, well, it's a big island in the Niagara River, and at this point in time, it's Iroquois land. And so they're really worried that the British are going to try and come over, annex Grand Island back into Canada, and possibly travel to Buffalo and burn Seneca villages. Now, in the Revolutionary War, the Mohawk gave up all of their land in New York because they sided with the British, and then when the Americans won the war, they said, hey, guess what? Your land's ours. So Red Jacket is afraid that once the British attack and take over Grand Island, the American army is going to be summoned. They're going to come in and defeat the British and then claim all of that land that was the last bit the Seneca had as theirs due to right of conquest. So Red Jacket drums up a war party and they decide to go and kick the British out because they don't want to risk any American army being summoned to, to march through. And although, remember, Red Jacket is a sachem, and the constitution of his people say that a governing sachem should not be a war commander, he could still tag along. But there was still a distinction with separation of powers. So he wasn't really involved in a lot of hand-to-hand -hand fighting during the war. The war ends. We're skipping ahead. We'll get back to it, don't worry. Because if you read a history book, the Iroquois are not, I, I am not joking, they are not mentioned at all in uh, any 
short topic on the War of 1812, but Caleb and I will see that they're centrally involved. In 1819, another council is gathered. This time, the meeting was over a very different topic, Caleb. Can you guess what it was? Yeah, Andrew, this one's actually going to be about the, the purchase of Indian lands. Oh, wow. We haven't talked about that yet. So who are we dealing with this time? <laughs> well, some, some new players that we haven't talked about before, uh, particularly the Holland Company. <laughs> And again, we're back to preemption rights. The Holland Company uh, sold their preemption rights to the Ogden Company. Ogden wanted to buy more Seneca reservations. Red Jacket gets up, gives another great speech, and seriously, guys, like dozens of Red Jacket speeches are recorded and in numerous biographies about him. Look him up and read some of them. But if we read all of them, this episode would literally take three days. Yeah, we just read that one speech and that was 10 minutes. So <laughs> so after Red Jacket stands up and gives his speech, he moves over, looks at Ogden and says, did I not tell you the last time we met that whilst Red Jacket lived, you would get no more lands from the Indians? How then, while you see him alive and strong... Striking his hand violently on his breast, do you think to make him a liar? Did Red Jacket get his point across? But now Red Jacket's starting to grow older, and he kind of gets into this mood of uh, depression and cyclical uh, drinking. Even though he spoke out against the use of alcohol, we can see that once you're hooked on something, you can be against it all you want, but... You still keep coming back to the bottle. Well, almost everybody that has ever experienced the sorrows of an addiction will be the first person to tell you not to do it because they don't want you to turn out like they turn out. And uh, things get more depressing. At some point in the 1820s, a visitor is coming to him and he said, Oh, do you have any kids? And Red Jacket says, Red Jacket was once a great man and in favor with the great spirit. He was a lofty pine tree among the smaller trees of the forest. But after the years of glory, he degraded himself by drinking the fire water of the white man. The great spirit looked on him with anger, and his lightning has stripped the pine of its branches. And people use that kind of him saying symbolically that most of his kids had died from disease or uh, different ailments by this point. In 1825, an old friend shows up, returning on a grand tour of the United States. He was a Frenchie. Guess who it was, Caleb? Uh, who's the only French person that we've talked about? Uh, well, we talked the, about a lot in the French Yeah, that's still alive at this point, though. Uh, it's got to be Lafayette. It's Lafayette. He meets up with Red Jacket. And Red Jacket recalls meeting him back at the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1784. And Red Jacket asks Lafayette, do you remember being there? And Lafayette says, yeah. And then Lafayette thinks about it. He said, you know, whatever happened to that really well-spoken young man who was really against uh, burying the hatchet and making peace? And what do you think Red Jacket said? He said, it's a me, a Mario. I don't know if he quite said it like that. Now all the Italians are going to think that we're bigoted against them. Hey, blame it on Mario. He's the one that talks like that. I'm just quoting him. But yeah, Red Jacket points out that that was him. Hey, I was that kid. The year following, uh, Ogden is back. This time he feels confident enough to call another council together to uh, guess what he wants to do, Caleb. You're never going to guess it. <laughs> what? 
He wants to buy some land. In fact, he wants all the land on the Buffalo Creek Reservation. And that's a pretty sizable chunk. It's It envelops not only modern-day Buffalo, but it pretty much stretches out, I would say, 50 miles to the east. It's a very big piece of property. This time, however, Red Jacket objects to him, but Ogden is able to uh, get Red Jacket overruled. The Seneca agreed to sell all of Tonawanda, Allegheny, and Buffalo Creek reservations for just 53 cents an acre. And in return, they will all be able to pack up and move to Wisconsin to a new home. And you're thinking to yourself, Wisconsin? Wait, I didn't know the Seneca lived in Wisconsin today. Well, they don't. And the reason is Red Jacket. He couldn't convince his nation to stop what he considered this folly, so he went to the only man he knew who could stop it. Washington? Well, no, because Washington's been dead for the last 20 (laughs) years. But you are still correct because he goes to Washington, D.C. So who would be president at this time? Would it be Quincy Adams? John Quincy Adams. Caleb hasn't had a chance to look ahead on the notes this time, so he's (laughs) actually legitimately guessing. Very good, Caleb. Although Adams had originally approved the deal, Red Jacket shows up in person and actually gets the president to change his mind. Adams says, okay, I want this deal to be on hold, and I want to review it and see what's going on here. The Ogden Company, specifically Ogden, gets pissed that Red Jacket has foiled them again. The company tries to put pressure on the clan mothers to legitimately remove him from office, which they do, but it only holds for a short time because after a few months... President Adams says, you know what? This Ogden deal is really fraudulent, and it's not in the best interest of the Seneca at all, and I am canceling this thing right here and there. Red Jacket gets reinstated by the clan mothers, and so everybody can thank Red Jacket for the fact that the Tonawanda and Allegheny lands are still in Seneca hands to this day. So good job, Red Jacket. Small victories, I guess. Yeah. Now Red Jacket's really coming to the latter part of his life. We've got a few witty anecdotes to tell you guys, just to show that although the end of his life can be a bit of sadness, there are some points of joy in it. So he was invited to a community called Black Rock. That's now a part of the city of Buffalo. They wanted him there because they were commissioning a new ship to be named after him. And everybody stands up and they say, speech, speech, speech. And this is the speech he gave. You have a great name given you. Strive to deserve it. Be brave and daring. Go boldly into the great lakes and fear neither the swift winds nor the strong waves. Be not frightened nor overcome by them. For it is by resisting storms and tempests that I, whose name you bear, obtained my renown. Let my great example inspire you to courage and lead you to glory. I want to cry. Another time, Red Jacket was hanging around in a village. And he was walking down the street and he noticed pictures in a printing shop. And there were two images of Lady Liberty and Lady Justice. And he stopped, and forgive me if we make him sound like he's uneducated, he's not, but he just didn't speak fluent English. But he asked in broken English, What call him? 
The person responded that she was Liberty, and Red Jacket went, Ugh. And then he rolled his eyes, and he pointed at the other one, and he said, What call him? And the person responded, Justice. And then Red Jacket asked, Where him live now? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) snap. Around the same time, Red Jacket's wife starts having, I guess you would call it a spiritual awakening. She actually gets really interested in this Jesus guy and decides that she wants to become a Christian. And Red Jacket tells her very plainly, it's either him or Jesus. And if she didn't stop this silly uh, Christianity stuff at once, he was going to leave her. She didn't. And so he packed up and moved out. And when I say moved out, like he literally moved to a different reservation. And he never saw her again, right, Caleb? No, not quite right. Now, Andrew, around this time when Red Jacket was living alone, he was still famous uh, to the white people, even though he didn't talk to them very much anymore. And there was a seminary student in town that was all the way from the East Coast, and he had heard of Red Jacket and wanted to speak with him. And Red Jacket agreed to meet with him. And we have some great dialogue between the two of them. We don't have time to get into it because this episode is getting really long, but the seminary student asks Red Jacket why he hates the Christians so much and why he's become a persecutor of them in the Iroquoian villages. And Red Jacket says, you know, things were good before they came. Nobody fought. You know, everybody got along. You know, no, there was no war. And just everything was good. And the seminary student looks right at him and he says, You're telling me that there was no bad Indians before white people got here. And Red Jacket goes, Well, I suppose there was some. And he said, And you're going to tell me that there was no wars before white people got here? He says, well, I guess there was some. He says, so you're going to tell me that everything was good before white people got here? He said, I suppose not everything was right. The seminary student said, so there were good and there were bad Indians. And Red Jacket said, yes. And he said, perhaps there are good And there are bad white people. And there are good and there are bad people that claim to be Christians. And Red Jacket says, I will need to think on this. Red Jacket decides that he really misses his wife and he decides to move back with her. She totally accepts him but tells him, look, please don't interfere with my personal beliefs. If you don't believe, okay, but, you know, you can't tell me what to do. And he agrees. In 1827, something happens where he pisses off the clan mothers again, and he is removed from office. But then the U.S. government steps in and says, look, guys, Red Jacket's cool. He really does like you. Can you please, please not do this to him? And he's reappointed. In January 1830, he's finally on his last leg. He's laying on his deathbed, and his wife and daughter are there caring for him. And he says, quote, I'm going to die. I shall never again leave this house alive. 
I wish to thank you for your kindness to me. You have loved me. You have always prepared my food and taken care of my clothes and been patient with me. I'm sorry I ever treated you unkindly. I'm sorry I left you because of your new religion. I'm now convinced that it is a good religion and has made you a better woman, and I wish you to persevere in it. I should like to live longer for your sake. I meant to build you a new house and to make you more comfortable. But now it is too late. When I am dead, it will be noised abroad through all the world. They will hear of it across the great waters and say, Red Jacket, the great orator is dead. And white men will come to you and ask for my body. They will wish to bury me, but do not let them take me. Clothe me in my simplest dress. Put on my leggings and my moccasins and hang the cross I have worn around my neck so long and let it lie on my bosom. Then bury me among my people. I wish the ceremonies to be as you like, according to the customs of your new religion, if you choose. Your minister says the dead will rise. Perhaps they will. If they do, I wish to rise with my old comrades. I do not wish to rise amongst the pale faces. I wish to be surrounded by red men. In Red Jacket's final years, Andrew, he constantly was going back and forth in arguments with the local missionaries and the local reverends that were preaching to the Seneca. At one point became almost like Red Jacket hated them, but over the years, Red Jacket slowly softened his heart towards the local preachers. And he became very concerned as he was on his deathbed that he would never be able to reconcile himself with the reverend. As soon as he realized that he was going to die, he had somebody send for the reverend because he wanted to make sure that they had forgiven each other of the things that they may have said or wished harm on each other. So one of his last wishes was to speak and ask for the forgiveness of this reverend. And his final days after sending for the reverend, the reverend had been out of town. And he begins to start muttering to himself as he's dying, I do not hate him. He thinks I hate him, but I do not. I would not hurt him. The name of the reverend was Reverend Harris. He was most likely visiting another reservation far away, so he wasn't around. And on January 20th, 1830, Red Jacket died, surrounded by his loved ones. And his final words were, Where is the missionary? He was about 80 years old and had served the Seneca Nation his entire life.